I realize anybody, creatives or not, if they really want something, that you will be tested to see how badly you really want it. And the higher levels you go, the more you'll be tested to reach that at level. You are now listening to Via Crayons, the podcast. Extraordinary conversations with Trinidad and Tobago's creative thinkers and makers. We'll delve into their processes, their struggles, and what drives them to execute continually as creative individuals. I'm your host, Dan McNichol. Enjoy. This podcast is a production of A Big Box of Crayons. Please review and rate the show by going to podchaser.com slash the podcast. You can help support the show by buying us a coffee or two at buymeacoffee.com slash wearecrayons. You're listening to We Are Crayons, the podcast. Thank you for being here. Today, I have a great opportunity to speak with producer, engineer, entrepreneur, Navid Lancaster. Yeah, man. Let's start from the very beginning, Navid. Tell me, how did you get into music and what role does it play in your life? All right. So let's start with the second question first. Mm -hmm. That's very easy. Music is everything. Mm. It's the basis of what I started my career on. It affected my choices in who I hang out with and who I listen to. Mm -hmm. Not just in music, but people in general. And it affected all my career choices up to this point. So how it all started. I was always a great listener of music since I was small. I really loved listening to music. I grew up in a family that, in a sense, was not musical in terms of like playing instrumentation, but in terms of, at least from my father's side, listening to vinyl. We had something called a gram mm-hmm. back in the day. So we had everything from LPs, 45s, that kind of stuff. So I was exposed to a lot of disco music, soul music, a lot of Sparrow and other calypsos as well, but mainly Sparrow. Apparently my dad was a major Sparrow fan. Besides that, I started listening to a lot of music on the radio. I'm almost 50 now, so a lot of music I, I grew up was, besides the American stuff, was a lot of British stuff mm. as well. And of course, back in those days, grew up watching a lot of in East Indian movies from Family Theater when TTT was the only station in town, those kind of things. So, But funny enough, playing music, I started very late. I know a lot of people, they, they start four, five. Mm-hmm. It started at the ripe old age of 19. And it wasn't from, in a sense, lack of trying. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I went to secondary school, I got the typical secondary school music education, you know, and we got it through the recorder, which I still consider to be the antichrist of music instruments. I hate the recorder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, especially that infernal song. I I can't, I can't remember the name of the bloody song, but it song goes, yeah, that song. Some young boys, you see, you see? Of course, of course. And the thing is, I had a great music teacher, but it's just the standard method of how it was an instrument. didn't appeal to me at all. But at 19, as I became a very pissed off angry young man i took all my energies into like rock and not just rock you're talking about like heavy metal death metal thrash metal right. you know that kind of stuff so i used to go to like rock shows back in the day you know headbang mosh pit mm. 
Mm. You know, I mean, I, and people look at me and I, so, I, I don't look like it, right? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> yes, but but actually, all the all the older heads in the rock community, yeah, I was there. You know, banging my head, and my sister, she got a guitar mm. for her birthday, and she didn't play it much. And when she used to go to school and something like that, right? She just went to her room and played the guitar. And one day she discovered that and she just did not, that did not fly over to her at all. So she said, yeah, here, take the guitar, take the guitar, I don't want it. I still have that guitar, by the way. That's my first guitar, I still have it to this day. So I had that guitar, it's a, a classical nylon string guitar. And I became really obsessed, sickeningly obsessed. I used to practice literally about 14, 15, sometimes 19 hours a day and sleep with the guitar on my bed kind of thing. You know, I, I was really obsessed with playing guitar to the point where when I was maybe into two years into it or something, like that, I started looking at joining bands. Being the, the piss off angry guy I was, I was, you know, I mean, it's the 80s. So I was a nerd, still am, proud, you know, proud geek, proud car carrying geek. But in the 80s, I was like suicide, especially if you go to a certain um, secondary old boys school. I was literally bullied for five years. Of all my schooling, that was the worst part. You know, for five years, you know, being the skinny, nerdy guy, it was hell. So did that add to who you was that angry? Yeah. Yeah. Because I had to, I had to let it out somehow. Mm-hmm. And since nerds don't usually go around beating people, mm-hmm. I found out that through music. And the music I could express all that anger through was heavy metal. On a slight side note, people say, you know, oh, rock music is devil music. No, it's so not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Especially for people like me, it was extremely therapeutic. Because mm-hmm. I could go there, headbang, let out all my anger, scream to the sky with the lyrics mm-hmm. and stuff and be as loud as I want to be and leave all that anger there and come back, you know, your head hurting, your neck hurting, whatever, you know? But you, you're refreshed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So so I could safely say, looking back, uh, rock music was one of the saviors of my life because I had a, a, a way of expression. That, and then I started being interested in martial arts. And I found a place in Baratai, which served also as a band room, the teacher. He was a part of this band called AK-47. I saw what they were doing. You know, after we, we, we trained and stuff, like the band members would come and practice. I used to hang around and stuff right. like that. And... They realized I, I played guitar. So they asked if I could join. So for about two years, I played with that band. During that time in AK-47, I learned a lot, especially upon reflection, about what to do and what not to do in a band and band dynamics and things like being consistent mm-hmm. and making sure that you practice your music before you reach to the band room. You know, so the band room is made for putting together the pieces. So I was with them for two years and... I decided to leave the band and form my own band. And that band became Broken Mirrors. We played for about 12 years and we did everything from rock, metal. And then we started incorporating things like poetry and rockifying local songs, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So we actually put out an album. We, the album's called The Eighth Year. During that time, I realized that I need to expand. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit. When I was 19, I had the opportunity to go to Guyana for three weeks. I'm a member of the Baha'i Faith and they had a major teaching campaign going on in Guyana. And I realized because I was bullied and all these things, you know, people looking at me sitting where I just didn't view about myself and mm-hmm. stuff. But when you go to another country, nobody knows you. So you mm-hmm. can totally reinvent yourself. And that's what happened. For those three weeks, I was like, 
Were you free to be me? I ended up staying four months in Guyana. And during that time, when I was trying to figure out myself, I had taken A-levels. And after A-levels, I was like lost. I was like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And while I was in Guyana during those four months, I ran into a guy named JB Echo. Mm-hmm. He's a Baha'i as mm-hmm. well. And he and I sat down and we were talking. Now, he's a musician. When he left Guyana, he ended up in a group called War, which is a 70s punk group. But then he ended up playing with and touring with Carlos Santana. You know, and he and I are still friends to this day. He sat me down and he showed me something from the Baha'i writings when I was wondering what to do with my life. And he showed me from the Baha'i writings that it says the, the best of men are they that follow their calling and spend upon themselves and upon their kindred for the love of God, the best of all worlds. And I saw that and I was like, okay, I, 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 make, I made a decision. I will become a musician because I gravitated towards the, the instrument. I was playing with the instrument all this time. I love music. I go to concerts. So that, this is my thing. So I come back to Trinidad and the amount of opposition I have gotten, when I told people, you know, this is what I want to become. For artists and creatives who will be listening to this podcast and who happen to live in Trinidad, they are very familiar with this, with this what I want to say. You sure this is what you want to do? You sure don't do this as a hobby? Think about it. I remember this one particular person and she irritated me to no end. Uh, but I kept that particular by writing in my mind. When she asked me what I want to become, I told her I want to become a musician. Mm-hmm. She said, forever? I said, yes. She goes, forever and ever? I said, yes. She goes, forever and ever and ever? And in my mind, I'm like, woman, shut up. <laughs> this is my life. This is what I want to do. And when I made this, that decision, I um, this, I was, and still am, so sure that mm. this is for me. And I keep telling creatives, especially if, if you're in the creative field and this is what you want to do to life, don't let anybody tell you different. Regardless of economic ups and downs, changes in the market, if this is for you, it's for you. Fast forward a little bit. I'm working as a... Assistant Secretary at the National Baha'i Center on Petra Street. I had it in my office. I had a television watching the um, morning show. And this one, Paolo Cullohan was, was, he was interviewing Kenny Phillips. I watched Kenny Phillips and I, I decided, wait a minute, I'm already doing music, playing guitar and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he's doing sound engineering. Sounds like a plan to me because they're interconnected, right? At that time, did you know what sound engineering was? Or? Um, No, I didn't know. I just, I just knew that, that He's a music producer. He gets to play music all day. Right. That's not like a plan to me. So as soon as the interview was done, I found the number. I called the station. I said, okay, there's somebody in Kenny Phillips that just finished the interview. Can I have his number? If I remember clearly, I spoke to Paolo. Paolo said, he just left, but here's his number. I called Kenny. I said, Kenny, I just saw your interview on TV. I want to be a sound engineer. I want to know how to do this thing. He says two things, which changed the course of my life. He says, one, I will train you how I was trained. And the second one is, if you want to learn about sound engineering, you have to leave your job. I left my job. Little did I know that the, the amount of tests and trials of fire that will come with it, which is something that I realize anybody, creatives or not, if they really want something, that you will be tested to see how badly you really want it. And the higher levels you go, the more you'll be tested to reach that at level. Now, I lived in... I was in Port of Spain, I think, all the time. I was living there. And Kenny is in Palm East. I didn't know what Palm East was. And I didn't have much money. That transportation to and from every day is going to be a killer. So Kenny told me, watch, I want to train you for three months. It's sink or swim. 
I go by Kenny. I thought he was going to say, okay, this is for that, that's for that. Now, I learned on Monster Device Center, I had, well, it wasn't really Windows at the time, but it was a Windows-ish mm-hmm. computer because it was DOS, right? He put me on a Mac, so I never, so I don't use a, a Macintosh, with two paying clients and the clock ticking because studio time is money. That's how I started to learn. And to make it matters worse, while that is going on, that this is just for the, the, the kicking for the carnival season. So all these soca artists are coming in by him to record. As a studio person all come in, I'm the gopher. Right. I'm the T-boy. Right. I'm the one who makes the coffee. I'm the one who has to get up early, reach their first, and leave last. Get up there and learn how to clean the, the, the heads of two-inch tape on a tape machine and that kind of stuff. And try to learn to run sessions. So I get both from customer, all kind of artists. All these, all these big artists. That that you know of today. Some of them were big before then. And in fact, one of them actually told me I really improved. And that was years ago. Because <laughs> I was horrible. So I used to sleep in the studio. And that happened for three months. No joke. I had it rough. But after two months, I still wasn't good enough. So I had to go. As bad as that was, it was invaluable. So I left there. And I ended up in a place called Proden. I don't think they're operational now. Even though it was a different studio, the output was different. It wasn't soca. So it's stuff you see on Radio 97 and all those ads and stuff. So I used to be producing that kind of stuff. So the producer of the see would come, uh, I would record you the voiceover and then compose some music underneath it and get it out the door. From there, after a few months, I ended up in spectacular promotions when they were on Anna Street. And I, I stayed in that studio for six years. I basically ran studios A and B and friends. From there, I really started to, to, to expand. In terms of doing my own productions, right. um, learning a lot about client psychology in terms of how to deal with clients, how to get them in the mood to record, how to get the vibe going. While I was a spectacular, I recorded a lot of clips of artists. Once or I used to go and set up the practice rooms, you know, so the musicians will come, they just plug in, make sure everything sounds all right. Then the, the clips on you know, the, the soccer artists will come and sing. So I, so I got to know a lot of people in the musical world as mu- musicians, you know, albeit not rock artists or whatever, right. but, you know, different musicians, you know, musicians. You know, I met Destro there, I met Marshall there, I re-met Iowa there. After the incident. So, <laughs> so, so he was one of the ones that cussed you out. Oh, very Kenny. much. Yeah. Paki was, was the one that said I improved. <laughs> when you saw me working, the stuff is spectacular. It's not really fast and right. quick. Yeah. So he gave me kudos afterwards. So I was grateful for that. You saw marked improvement. <laughs> but, but it was too trial by fire. Left. Spectacular. I worked at UTT. So I was in UTT for four years in the music technology department with Martin Raymond, Iwich Watanabe, uh, Katsunari Mai. I also started learning Japanese in UE before I met them, which, which served well because in UE you learned former Japanese. But when you meet Jack Japanese, you learn to speak straight, a couple of cousins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a nice way to build a relationship. And that's an, another thing which I started learning. I learned it. In, in spectacular, but I started reading really it in UTT and throughout the rest of my career. That skills are nice, but skills can only get you so far. Mm-hmm. It's relationships mm-hmm. that you build with people that get you to where you're supposed to mm-hmm. go, right? During that time in UTT, I didn't have a tertiary education at that time. I had up right. to secondary because I, have, I mean, I finished A-levels, but they had this opportunity to learn practical aspects about media. I said, cool, I'm that. I want to learn some stuff, right? So I learned everything from 
basic television production, um, radio production. I learned um, everything from print media. So I was making like magazines and stuff like that. After I got my BTEC, they had the opportunity, of course, to do a bachelor's in, in media and communications. Right. Uh, so I did that. I got a first class honors. And then the opportunity came up to do a master's. I was like, well, my brain already warmed up. Might mm-hmm. as well do it, right? So I did my master's in um, new media and society, which served me well. And while I was doing my master's, and the time I had to take to do that, and the time I had to vote to UTT, I decided to leave my post and set to start my own company, which was Landcast Limited. And, you know, I finished my master's. I'm there with all these years of skills, all this work I've accumulated, I'm you know, wondering what's the next move. And I'm, I'm a networking pound. When I see somebody, I say, what here? I, this is what I do. Here's my card. It so happened that when I was at UTT and I was setting up for a live show, I saw this guy and this girl set up this camera and they're recording stuff. I, I walk up to the guy and say, hey, I'm Navid. What's your name? He tells me Stephen Taylor. I say, hi, cool. And I go about to my business recording and stuff like that. Next thing you know, about two, three months later, I get a call from Stephen. I'm doing this film called Buck. Would you want to compose for it? I'm, and this is after I sent him my email with basically stuff that I have done in terms of right. production stuff like that. And I said, yeah. Now, I never did a, a film before. I never scored the picture before. But I realized something early on when I started playing guitar that everything is connected. So if you could play guitar and you have sound engineering and production decide it's still related to music so just learn that extra skill and add it on to playing guitar if you're learning production in terms of getting the best of our, our, our artists it's still the same thing connect so so everything basically starts from my sister rejected rejecting my guitar side so i know i don't tell her much but she but i owe her a lot <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure she'll be glad to hear that <laughs> she's the one that sent me on this trajectory so i i read up about scoring to picture and I realized there's something called a spotting session. A spotting session is basically you sit down with the director and you watch the film. You decide where to put music and where not to put music. While I'm doing that, I'm slowly trying to build up my own equipment. I had a couple of programs that I found out later are, are great for doing like EDM music and stuff like that, but not really great for scoring film. But I managed to tough it out, figure it out and scored Buckley Man Spirit. And that film won in 2012, best short and people's choice for best short at the Trinity Big Film Festival. I got called again to do another film the next year. Uh, that was Jab in the Dark. That one, that year, I decided to say, okay, let me start marketing myself as the, the premier film so composer. <laughs> if I check a couple of my interviews on the, in the press, newspaper press, you actually hear me say, if you want your film to win an award, it has to pass through my hands. I literally <laughs> said that. Because I'm bullfaced like that. I don't cater. Right? I don't cater. <laughs> well, and, and I have a track with a bucket of two films. Right, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, got you. Yeah, so, realizing how everything is connected in terms of scoring to picture, I started getting into animation. Now I'm scoring music for children's shows. Pepper Pot Valley was one that was a character. I did music and sound design for that. I'm going to try my hand at video games, which unfortunately I can't tell you what we're doing now because things were signed. And start doing stuff for AR. And I decided to add sound design, which is separate from composing music. Now I'm at a point where I'm fortunate to have a few people contact me.
If you are enjoying this episode, please leave us a review at podchaser.com slash podcast. You can support the show by buying us a coffee or two at buymeacoffee.com slash wearecrayons. Follow us on Instagram at a big box of crayons. And now back to the show. What is it that continues to drive you? Because having to stick it out, sleeping on the carpet by Kenny, you know, I mean, having to make that decision, do I walk away from this job to follow this thing? I don't know if you could put your finger on it. Oh, I can put my finger on these. I could practice a few of them. One is that, well, one from the Baha'i writings, mm-hmm. it assured me that this is for me. That's one. Two things started to fall in place. Once I made a decision to go this direction, I started getting equipment. I started getting a lot of knowledge about certain things. I started being invited to certain private Facebook groups where certain composers are. The one thing that I realized, and I learned this, start getting haters. And I know it's, it sounds strange to be a motivator, but once you start getting haters who actively are trying to stop you or actively trying to derail your brand, I realize I'm on the right path. And that even motivates more to push harder. Can you share with me, mm-hmm. Navid, a lesson that you learned? The major lesson in the macro is that you will experience testing difficulties. You can't avoid it. You can mitigate it by learning from what other people did and saying, okay, I'm not going to do that because I'll end up in this situation. I'm not going to do that because I'll end up in that situation. But in some form or fashion, you will be tested. The test will come because you want to go higher. You're going to feel uncomfortable. And it may come from areas of your life or people from life you least expect it from. It's always the curveballs that will shock you. The ones that you expect, no problem. You see them in front of your face, you know. That's how life is. To go from one level to the next, you will experience some testing difficulties. It's, it's how... You ride those waves or determine that it's a success or an experience. I know at this point in time, you're enjoying some level of recognition and success. Yeah. How did you deal with the low points when nobody was looking for Navid? Just sticking to my guns. This is what I want to do with my life. There are low points. I mean, I'm going through some business hiccups right now. The creative economy in Trinidad has some unique challenges. So you get everything from people that want to pay mm-hmm. to people liking your stuff. And when you give them what they want, they don't like it. A myriad of other things. You just have to realize that this is who you decided you wanted to be. You signed up for this. So since I signed up for this kind of lifestyle, these are the things that come with this lifestyle. So... I can't praise or blame anybody but me for decisions I have made. When I do hit low points, and there have been <laughs> some beautiful low points, I just have to suck it up and say, well, this is what I decided to do with my life. This is the client who I wanted to work with. This is the kind of music I wanted to create. This is the kind of computer I wanted to buy. This is the kind of software I wanted to own. This is the kind of relationship I wanted to have with a person in terms of working. This is the kind of ship I wanted to have a person for a personal thing. You know, all these things have effects. For low points, I just have to suck it up and deal with it and learn from it. So I won't willingly make that mistake mm. again. 
Is there something you do to put yourself in a creative state of mind? Prayer is one. Emmy feels a zillion times at it sometimes, but prayer is a, a big deal in my life. Sometimes just getting away from the computer. The computer is just a tool. It's not the be all and end all. What I would want, I haven't had much chance to do it, is to get into nature more. I'm a big fan of open spaces. I love open spaces. As I get older, I realize sleep is a very important aspect of my life. Hang out with friends once in a while, you know, mm. j- just to get away from anything that's music. Although you love music so much, you've put your heart and soul into it. Has there ever been a time you said to yourself, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. It happens more often than I would like. And I think it's mainly because we live in a creative environment where musicians aren't given the level of respect as doctors or lawyers. Uh, as a friend of mine, Ruby Derry Victor said, Trimbagonians have more talent per square foot than anybody on the planet. And I, I believe that 100%. But the construct of the society that we live in does not give the creatives the freedom to create the way they're supposed to create. And that pisses me off to no end. That being said, the alternative of doing a nine-to-five doesn't appeal to me anymore. I've been in that world for years. I know what it entails. I have become a musician who has been fortunate to expand his repertoire. I'm literally seeing things come together. It may not come together at the speed I like, mm-hmm. but that's a fault of mine because I'm, I'm an impatient bastard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but things are falling into place. I've, I've seen this diagram a few times. There are different ways of drawing the diagram where you see two people with pickaxes. One of them drop a pickaxe and they give up on the walkway. And they run just so close and the diamonds are right underneath there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the person that mm-hmm. put the pickaxe down and walk away. I want to stick this one out. And, and even if I don't stick it out for me, I want to stick it out for spite. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're bad. Because I'm bad mind like that. <laughs> I said, I don't cater. <laughs> I don't cater. What piece of advice would you be able to give to a young person? Wanting to get into music. That person at 17, at 19. People, they watch music videos. They see people on stage. And they think it's all glamorous. It's so not glamorous. It's work. They're only seeing the front end. They're not seeing the back end. And the back end is what matters to make the front end work. Even in terms of, of engineering and mixing and stuff like that. People, they see a performance stage and they sound good or whatever. Uh Which is nice. But in my point of view, the people who have the real power is like the sound mixer. Because we could take them off by flip of a switch or pull out a plug. You know, it's the back end that matters. So people who want to get into this industry or any aspect of the industry, the very, very first thing they have to realize, this is work. There's no games out here. It's work. And a good few cases, especially now starting, I'll give an experience. When I wanted to get into the music industry, when I had this desire, this was just after I think I started picking up the guitar and stuff, but before I got into sound engineering, they had this well-known pop artist. He, he did a couple sort of stuff, but he's more pop. I found out where he was living. He wasn't living too far from where I was working. I walked into his house, said, my name is so-and-so-and-so. I want to know how to get into the music industry. Can you give me at least some advice? His words were, and I quote, give me $500 and I'll tell you how to get into the music industry. That has stayed with me all these years. And, and I hated him for that. And this is why anytime a young person asks me certain questions about the music industry or asks me certain questions about this or that, I give them everything I, I know because it's total BS to tell a person that. We live in the age of, of internet. 
you could find anything online. Aspects about the music industry, aspects about sound engineering, aspects about scoring to film. You could get that online easy. But that's beside the point. Back to human-to-human relationships. If a person asks me about getting into aspects of the music industry or the film industry or whatever, I'm not going to go back anything or say it's a trade secret. To me, trade secrets are BS. Knowledge is widely available. But they want to find out about you and new experience and whatever pitfalls you had or things that you see in the future and say, watch, better you do it this way or you could do it this amount of ways. Why am I the great person to hold stuff back? That is rubbish. That is total bullshit. If I don't know something, I would say, watch, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody else who knows. Know, because this affects me deeply. That question you ask affects me deeply because of my experience of what happened to me. And I don't want that to happen to any up-and-coming artist, any established artist, anybody who's way ahead of me. I would have found how I got into certain, certain circles. I, I tell people what I know on my experience. It makes no sense holding back stuff. That just makes you look insecure, selfish, and stupid. Plain talk. Plain talk. So when people ask stuff, yeah, I give it to them freely. What they do with it afterwards, that's on them. But the main thing is they saw something in me and my experience for them to ask. So why should I hold back? Holding back does not make sense. If you want to find out about certain aspects of music industry and sound design, I've written blogs about it uh, using real world projects that I have done. And I show people step by step of how I, how I built those worlds. You can go to my website, uh, lancastlimited.com. That's L-A-N-C-A-S-T-L-T-D.com. And just go to the blogs, hit, hit the blog section and you see all the blogs there and you can learn a lot of stuff. So Navid, what would you like to be most remembered for? Yeah, I want my company be, to be worldwide. I want my brand to be synonymous with quality. But at the same time, I don't want to lose my soul. So I want one people hear something from Landcast. Two things should, should come to mind. One, this is from Trinidad Tobago. And two, my God, this music is good. Mm-hmm. Or this sound design is excellent. So what I want to be most remembered for is tall, skinny-ish, nerdy guy who did good stuff, made some people happy, and hopefully educated some people along the way. That's great, man. That's great. So Navid again, yes. thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm sure that you know somebody will get some benefits from this. So again, thank you very, very much. And I'd like to thank you as well because no, seriously, you you are doing a great service to mm-hmm. the creatives in this country. And I mean, it's a podcast and it's online, which means in reality it's going to outlive all of us. So yeah, you you're really doing a great service. Seriously. Thank you. Appreciate that, man. Appreciate that. So with that, Navid's contact details, links to his website, social media platforms will live in the show notes on abigboxofcrayons.com. I am Navi Lancaster. And in a big box of crayons, I am Sky Blue. Please share this episode with someone who would find it valuable. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to get new episodes as they become available. Find additional content on abigboxofcrayons.com. Follow us on Instagram at abigboxofcrayons. We Are Crayons, the podcast, is a production of A Big Box of Crayons. All rights reserved. Until next time, remember... 
we are all the same and the fact that we'll never be the same. Stay colorful and thank you for listening.